Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest, Krista Mayshore, is in the top 1% of realtor and business coaches across the United States and has been a top 1% producer as a real estate agent for the past 20 years. She is the author of five best-selling books focusing on digital marketing and was named Yahoo's Finance's number one digital marketer to watch in 2021. She can also be found among the top 125 most impactful leaders in 2022 alongside Tony Robbins, and that is all according to Success Magazine. She's been featured in Forbes, Inman News, The Wall Street Journal, NBC, Fox, and many others. And she recently went from zero to $48 million in revenue in just five years. Krista has a master's degree in curriculum and instruction and always is a teacher at heart and she loves serving people and has then turned her attention to sharing the secrets of her successes by coaching agents and professionals across America. Through her coaching, teaching, speaking and training, Krista is revolutionizing the way agents and professionals market themselves online. She offers an innovative step-by-step approach to how agents and entrepreneurs can gain a massive digital footprint. She has a master's degree in curriculum and instruction and uses those skills to support the successes by her coaching clients across the U.S. And Krista is revolutionizing the way agents and professionals market themselves online by guiding them in being creative and innovative and action takers who gain a massive digital footprint in growing their brand. I absolutely loved my conversation today with Krista. Listen in, enjoy, let's get this show started. Krista Mayshore, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Patrick. I'm excited to be here. For- now, I have been on your podcast, so I have met you. You know more about me than I know about you. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about you. And uh, so, again, thanks for joining me. You know, Chris, I always want to open is that my intros never do justice to my guests. So the question that I like to pose always is somebody says to you today, Krista, what do you do? What's your answer to that question these days? I help um, real estate agents and entrepreneurs utilize um, innovation and technology to stand out in their amongst all the noise in non-traditional ways. So that's a marketing narrative, I guess, is what we're going to call that. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I would I would say that I teach people if you want to be a top producing anything, you need to be a top marketer uh, because I think marketing and innovation is the backbone behind any business. And whether you're in business for yourself or you're working for somebody else. If you think about all the big brands, like they are marketers. So marketing first, top producer, top it, educator, top whatever, second. (laughs) Now, it's interesting, right? So what's happening in the U.S. in the real estate world versus what's happening in Canada? There's going to be some divergence. Right now, what we're seeing in uh, several markets in Canada, real estate's gotten very stopped. You know, realtors are having to work really hard to try and find listings because listings aren't really showing up and then what listings are showing up. There's not a lineup of people looking to buy listings. What's happening in the U.S. right now in that regard? Same thing. I mean, it's definitely gotten a little bit more challenging there. You know, with interest rates more than doubling, you're seeing more real estate agents leave the the industry. I think the last time I, the last statistic I read, we've already had 70,000 agents leave uh, in the, you know, United States leave the industry. Uh, because it's not so easy. So a lot of people got into this in, in the business in the past five, six years when things were simple, and now it takes a little bit more work. Uh, but with that being said, people still have to sell. They still are buying, you know, having babies, getting married, getting divorced, relocating, downsizing, dying. I mean, all those life events are still happening. And so um, we're, we're still seeing our properties sell, 
It's just, it's not as easy to, to get them. So there's, it's interesting, I think, and I'm sure it's similar in the U.S. In Canada, it's literally, I think, 2%, I want to say 2% of realtors who have a license sell more than one property a year. Like, the, it's, it is actually such a small percentage of realtor licenses that everybody's, that anybody's really acting on. You know, it's like one to five deals a year is pretty, you know, makes up 85% of the realtor market. And it's is the top 10%, top 5% that really make a difference. And then the top 2% where they're doing multiple deals. So, you know, you mentioned that, you know, 70,000 realtors lose, leave the industry. I mean, I'm going to, yeah, I mean, it's probably a safe assumption that it's those individuals that, you know, weren't really making a living doing it that just checked out. What's your thoughts? I'm, I'm just speculating. Yeah, I totally agree. But and that's the thing why it's so important to kind of like get your message out there and to show your unique, your unique value proposition. Because all of those people that are, you know, that 85% that are doing between one and five transactions is still a huge chunk, right? And they're taking away from the bulk from the true professionals. So being able to really position yourself as the authority and as the expert, not just like one of the crowd, doing what everyone else is doing is super important because those little onesie twosies take away from, you know, the really great agents. And also those onesie twosies that just got in it for any reason that will reduce their commission that will just sell for anything, make it to where the, the true professionals really have to have a harder time justifying why they do charge a, a top commission and why what does make them so different and so unique and why it really does make a difference to hire someone who really knows what they're doing. You know, I think that, you know, over the years, you know, I've been in business 40 years. I'm the OG on the block, you know, as in the old guy, not the original gangsta. But anyways, whatever that is, I'm the old guy. My point is, is 40 years of business, you know, I learned many years ago that when times are good, we should be marketing. When times are bad, we must be marketing. And it is a little bit counterintuitive, isn't it, that, you know, often in businesses and, and I'm sure in the real estate or the realtor industry, you know, one of the first costs that get cut is marketing. It seems like the obvious cut to make, yet it really is counterintuitive because it's actually the cost that you may even actually in some cases want to increase. You know, what's your philosophy on that, Krista? Oh, a thousand percent. I think that, you know, uh, so in fact, there's there's something called the like the risk to purchasing factor ratio, right? So meaning in times of uncertainty, people need more trust, right? So people need uh, more trust and they, and they take longer to purchase during times of uncertainty, right? Which means that we need to market more, not less, because the trust ratio versus the purchase or hiring ratio uh, happens. So when, like, we're definitely in uncertain times right now, not just in real estate, Everywhere. Real estate, yeah, everywhere, especially in the real estate community, market sellers and buyers, they are more uncertain now than they were ever before. So with times of more uncertainty and more risk and more skepticism, that's when you need more trust, which means you need to put more dollars and more investment into marketing yourself, into marketing your goods and service, not less. And so while everyone else is pulling back, it's a greater time to be putting more into it because there's less competition. People are doing more research and people need more information before they make a decision because they are uncertain. Now you have a podcast, you have a brokerage, you've got a marketing background, you coach realtors, you do a lot of that work. You have developed an expertise over the years in marketing and understanding real estate and, you know, how to grow a, you know, how to grow your business as a realtor. Do you think that you know, our realtors, you took it on. Here's, let me, let me go back. Like you took it on to say, no, I'm going to learn this. And then over the years that evolved to be what it is today is I, I think is probably how it happened. It's probably one of the more common ways, not that it is the, that for you. But my question really is, is that from a realtor expand, uh, perspective who maybe doesn't have the background you have, doesn't do the video, doesn't do the podcast, doesn't have the marketing background, what do they do? I mean, Oh, my budget's limited. Uh, where do I turn? What do I do? What's your thoughts on that? How are you guiding somebody? Because I'm looking at it in two places, right? I'm number one, small business owners, because small business owners 
to me, realtors are small business owners. They are entrepreneurs, whether they're solopreneurs or not, doesn't matter. Point is, is how do you guide or coach some of your clients into making these kinds of decisions? So, uh, you know, for anything in the world, no matter what it is that you're researching or doing, most people will go online to research, right? Like they, they go to YouTube to compare and contrast. They go to Google to ask questions or chat GPT to ask questions. They're, they're, they're going online to get their, que- their questions answered first before anything else. In fact, like what's the NAR stat is like 99% of buyers and sellers go online first, right? So knowing what you do as a consumer, even for something so small as to like, what's the best pizza place in to go to in town or the best Italian restaurant or the best sushi spot or, you know, uh, who to hire to mow your lawns. Like you're going online and saying, Hey, who's the best, you know, landscaper to hire or where's the best place to go in town. It is no different with any type of a profession, especially in real estate. And the thing about buying and selling is that I think, I think there's a, there was a study that was done and I think it was from an AR, but it's around 11 to 13 months that a buyer or seller starts researching before they actually take action. When they start, start having the thought to, to sell uh, or to buy, they're going online and they're doing a massive amount of research before they ever decide to take the plunge uh, or even call somebody, right? So the idea is, is, is if you know what you do as a consumer for something so small as what restaurant to go to um, when you're out of the area, imagine one of your most important decisions and probably the most uh, the biggest financial investment you'll make, whether it's buying or selling, think about that. And then like, what are your behaviors of a consumer? And don't you think that other people are doing the same thing? And then would it be advantageous or beneficial for you to be the person that they're gathering information from and that they're learning from prior to making that call to ensure that you at least get the call, right? And so you know, it's really important when you're a real estate agent or a, or a local business or any kind of a solopreneur or an entrepreneur, it's really important who you know, but what's even more important is who knows you. And so you have to ask yourself when somebody is thinking about buying or selling or investing, right? Or flipping or whatever else, who are, who are they thinking about? And are you someone that comes to mind prior to them making the plunge? And if not, ask yourself, okay, would that be important for me to be somebody that they thought about? And then the first steps on doing that is just to what I call to be not so much a consumer of content, but more of a producer, right? How can you start to be a reporter? The best way to start is just to be a reporter of what's happening locally more important, because anytime you have content, the more relevant it is to them, the closer in proximity it is to them, and the more current it is, those are three of the things that make people really interested in it. How can you create current relevant content that really is in close proximity and relevancy to your, your ideal client? And wow, you've been amazed at how quickly um, you can start to generate a lot of interest. You know, I love this conversation because it really speaks. It's like one of my, uh, I guess, fundamental passions is supporting small business owners. Again, realtors and, and real estate investors and and literally bricks and mortar. And one of the things that we get into the discussion about is how do you create your brand? How do you establish your identity? How do you set yourself up so that people recognize you as an expert, given what your brand is and what your brand narrative is? You know, what are the problems that you're solving? What is it you're bringing to the table? You know, it was interesting that years ago, a good friend of mine was a realtor. He lives local here and he started, he was just getting into it and he was not afraid to get in front of a camera. He wasn't afraid to uh, embarrass himself. Uh, he is uh, Colombian and so English was second language, ESL, but he got in front of the camera and he would go around this particular town, city uh, close by called Langley. And he would, his whole brand was, this is Langley. And he would walk into a small business and go, I'm talking about Langley to potential buyers and real estate owners and uh, you're in the, the hood. Can we talk about your business? And he would interview these people and he said, this is Langley, this is Langley. And he kept 
pushing out, and this is Langley. And he did a great job of it, little two or three minute vignette kind of video things that were highlighting businesses in the area, talked about the neighborhood, talked about what's here. And it was amazing the number of people that gravitated to him. Now, I was never going to buy a piece of real estate in Langley, but even though I knew him, he had established himself as an expert. So if I met somebody who was looking for a piece of real estate, looking for investment in real estate, I go, you should talk to Juan. I tell you what, he's a cool cat. He knows Langley like the back of his hand. And I would then refer him because of the brand that he created and the expertise or the expert he showed up as in that particular market. And I thought, man, what a great idea, but it was a way for him. So sometimes we think the content we don't get creative around content. We're, we're saying maybe the same things as others. To me, that was a way for him to stand up. What's your thoughts? You're the expert. I'm not. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and that's what I teach my students. I teach them to be called to become a community market leader. So anything and everything community local, like specific to talk about, right? Uh, like think about it. If you hear this house is on fire in Chicago, this house burned down in Chicago a year ago. It's, it's, it's going to, it's not as exciting as, Hey, this house is on fire right now. Oh, I want to learn about it. Well, this house is on fire on your street, right? <laughs> yeah. It's current and it's in proximity to you. The more proximity, like the more relevant to your own, what, what's interested you, the more it will convert. So talking about what's happening in the area, things to do, what's nearby, great places to eat, what's happening on the weekend. What's a new business in town. What's happening in the community that people are talking about, both good and bad, right? I mean, like, talk about it. For like, for the, We have this crazy bridge that's being built in our area. It's like the dumbest thing. They're spending millions of dollars making this, this pedestrian bridge that brings people over this freeway. And it's like, it's one of the most controversial things. Like, my son's like, I'm just going to walk on that bridge just to say that I did because they're spending millions of dollars of our tax dollars on, on this stupid bridge, right? Just something like that people are interested in. And um, some of our most watched videos that we that we uh, make, and we make tons of videos from interviewing local restaurants to local businesses to things to do in the city uh, locally. But our most watched videos are our local market updates, like what's happening in the market right now locally, right? And then also our national market updates. Like we do both, but people really want to know what's happening locally. I always... I always tell, like, as an agent or as an investor, right? If you see a house go on the market in your on your street, the first thing as an agent you do is you get mad because they didn't hire you. The second thing you do is you go pull the flyer or you go home and you check the MLS because you want to know what the house was listed for because you live in that neighborhood, right? People are so consumed with real estate, and that's why these real estate, you know, TV shows like these, um, you know, Selling Sunset or whatever. They're one of the most popular TV shows because people are obsessed with real estate. They're obsessed with homes and even more so locally. So just to your point, this is Brentwood. This is, you know, Tuscany. This is my neighborhood. People are obsessed with it because that's where they live. And perception is reality. So you can be a brand new agent and start talking about what's happening in the local area. And very quickly, people start to think that you're an expert or that you're busy because they're saying you produce content, even if you've never even sold the house before. I actually have an agent that got voted best. She was a brand new agent. Her name was Sue LaFabi, and she got best. She got voted best agent in her city before she had ever sold a house. And it wasn't like she was emailing all of her friends, telling them to vote for her because she hadn't sold anything yet. So she she was like a secret agent that was actually talking all about the city and she got voted best agent in her city because of that. I love that story. Now, we didn't talk about where you're located. Where are you located? I'm in Northern California. I'm in a city called Discovery Bay. I'm in between uh, San Francisco and Sacramento. Wow. And so that's your hood. That's your area of expertise. And now you have a brokerage that you own the brokerage and you have realtors that are part of your brokerage. Is that my understanding? Yeah. So I was a, a full-time agent for, um, I've been in real estate for 21 years. I was a full-time practicing agent for 17 of those years. The past six years, I've been coaching realtors and lenders from across the country. Um, and I, and, uh, I work, I'm with EXP. So I, I have over seven agents across the country that are within my EXP organization as well. And this is what I teach them to do. I teach them to create content. So now that I'm a full-time coach, 
my, um, I was selling, I averaged 135 homes a year as a solo agent, 17 years in a row. And now that I'm, I'm coaching, like selling real estate's more of my, my, my brother's kind of taking over the role. We don't sell as nearly as many homes now because he's not quite as aggressive as I am and psychotic when it comes to work, but <laughs> he's, he's more, he's got much more a balance than I did. <laughs> well, 135 uh, transactions a year as a solo realtor, that's a ton of deals. So it was. Okay. It was. Now, aside from crazy work hours and keeping on going, what's the difference between a top performer like yourself and mediocrity? Is it work ethic? Is it, what is it? What is it that really is a difference? Now, 135 is an extreme. So if we look at the bell curve, you know, as a solopreneur or as a solo realtor, you're kind of at the, you know, you're to the far right on a bell curve. You know, how do you look at the middle of the bell curve and say, what is it that gets in people's way of having, let's say, performance where they're selling 80 deals a year, which is still a home run in most by most realtors. To sell 25, 30 homes a year, you're still on in the top 90, like the top 5% yeah. of agents, 30 homes a year, right? Right. Uh, I think one thing is drive. Like, and I, and I know that's not what you want to hear, but I think, and you can't really teach drive. I, I've learned that just from coaching people. It's like you have to have the drive. You know, let me, I'll kind of give you a, a background on how I came up with this whole marketing way, right? And this, this can really any agent or, or flipper out there. And I'll tell you what, I think investors uh, and flippers are really missing the mark because they, I don't see any of them in my local area. I never see any investors um, or flippers talking about investors. I have some students that are doing it that are investors and, and it's, it's completely changed their business. And, and the fact that realtors are going to them for deals because they know they're the go-to person, right? I know a lot of a lot of people that are investors and realtors, they're, they're afraid, oh, people are going to be afraid to come to me because I'm a realtor. That's not the case if you are positioning yourself correctly. So when, I, when the market switched back in 2008, I was a foreclosure agent and I sold foreclosures for five or six years. Like I'd go to my computer and I'd have, I worked with 13 different asset management companies from I had Green River Capital, Wachovia, Wells Fargo, uh, and then they became they became Wells Fargo and Wachovia together. I had the HUD account, Freddie Mac account, and I sold foreclosures. And it was easy for a long time, right? Once I got the foreclosures. And then the market got better. And I remember going on a listing appointment and the I called to see, you know, if they were going to hire me. And they said, Christy, we really liked you, but the last guy we interviewed called you the foreclosure. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I am a foreclosure queen. Nobody knows me. I haven't marketed myself at all. So for the past five, six years, I just would show up to my desk. I'd have uh, assets that would get were given to me. My best year in real estate, I sold 169 homes. Again, as a, as a single licensed agent, it was just me uh, with, with an assistant and a transaction coordinator. And when the market got better, all of a sudden I went from 100 plus homes down to like 12 because everything dried up. And so I remember thinking, okay, how am I going to do this? How am I going to turn this around? Because... Nobody knows me. So it was like I was starting from scratch. And so I, I made the decision, I am going to start marketing myself within these two communities. So at that time, they didn't have video or social media or Facebook. So I just started creating flyers and I started creating, you know, uh, postcards that I would start sending to the, to the mailboxes. And I made sure that like every 10 days, every two weeks, I would show up in their mailbox with the postcard about what was happening in the community. I talked about like, things to do, whether it be like, here's the, here's the school schedule. Here's the football schedule. We had the A's and the 49ers and all these different, uh, I do the, the schedules for that. I would talk about, you know, just listed things. I would show active spendings and sold. I would kind of give a little mini market report on the postcards. And then before you knew it, I was up selling over hundred years ago within 12 months. And then once video came, I put a digital twist to it. And I started creating videos about the local market, the local neighborhoods. And then I would run ads behind those videos on Facebook so that I would be showing up in people's news feeds and they'd see me over and over again. And before you knew it, because I became like, it was almost like I became a local celebrity um, and people will still, they'll tell me, I see your commercials, you know? And it wasn't like they saw my commercials. They would just see, they would see my content online where they were showing up. And that's how I went back from being a foreclosure agent to back to being a traditional agent. And that's why I teach my students to do. And you don't have to have any listings to do that. You can just, like you said earlier, you know, 
like this is Brentwood. You can just start talking about everything that's going on in the neighbor in in the in the community, from businesses to things to do to restaurants to you know the best dog parks in town to prolific uh, controversial things, and just start doing it as consistently as possible. Try to be entertaining. Try to be educational. Add a lot of value. Don't just make it about you. And and it's amazing, you know, how quickly your business can change. I think that's the biggest challenge for many that are just starting out in that space is not making it about them. And they're incredibly nervous or shy or they are afraid of judgment or what their peers might say if they do a video. And I'm sure that you're having to push sometimes hard in your client base to just go do it. Keep producing content. Just keep doing it. You'll get better at it. Is is that the case for you as well? You see where people get really nervous about the judgment that they feel comes with it. They're busy thinking about what people will think about them as opposed to delivering content and being of service to others. What's your kind of philosophy with your clients around that? 1,000%. And here's the deal. If you take 100 people, there's going to be one or two that are naturally comfortable doing video. Most of us, including me, we're worried about what we're gonna, people are going to think about us. Are we going to make a mistake? We don't know what to say. People are going to judge us. And, and here's the deal. People are going to. Yep. So let them, your, your coworkers are going to judge you, whether you do or don't. Your communities judge you, your family and friends, they're going to judge you anyway. So let them judge you about the right thing. And here's what happens, like inevitably. When a newer agent or somebody starts to do this, yes, at first people are like, why are they doing that? We're, oh my gosh, what are they talking about? Who do they think they are? And then in a few months, four, five, six months, 12 months go by and they're like, Oh my gosh, what are they doing? How can I do that? Like, well, I mean, oh my gosh, I wish I would have started that. Like, can you tell me what you're doing? It did that it, it totally changes so quickly because they see there's nothing, you know, they said that there's that saying, like a picture says a thousand words. Well, a video says millions of words. And, you know, you you capture so much from speaking to somebody or somebody doing a video in regards to just a picture. Uh, and, and research even so that the more that somebody sees you, the more often they see it, the more they grow to like you. So somebody at first might be annoyed by you, you might bother them, but research shows that the more that people start to see you, the more they start to gravitate towards you, the more that that judgment turns from judgment into like, oh, let me see what's, what, what they're talking about because I keep seeing that. You know, you kind of start to wear on people, so to speak, in a positive way. So let's go back, Krista, you know, tell me a little bit about you in terms of, you know, you're entrepreneurial, you're got a, you know, you're well-spoken, you've obviously got a big entrepreneurial spirit. Where did that come from? Like when you go back, do, were your parents entrepreneurial? Do you have siblings that are entrepreneurial? Where did you get the spirit that you've got and to be driven the way you're driven to use your language? So I have not lived at home since I was 13. I actually ended up you know, getting in some trouble as a young, as a youth, not really in trouble. I started running away from home uh, because there was some physical abuse that was happening um, in my in my home from my mom, who I'm very close to now. She's one of my best friends, but she it was like I lived in two homes. I had this very happy family, you know, loving mom and a very loving dad, uh, and then I had an abusive mom who was the same mom, right? Mm. Um, she had issues growing up, and so when I was born, some of those issues kind of got passed on to me, and so. When I turned 13, I started running away and then ended up going to juvenile hall. And then I ended up getting sent to a group home for a year, a group home for girls. And then from uh, from there, I got got sent to a foster home and I've not lived at home since I was 13. So, um, and then when I turned 18, the foster parents uh, said, hey, we, you loaded it up, but you gotta go. Money ran out. And so I you know, graduated and I was just on my own. And so I kind of had to sort of do it, if that makes sense. I sort of had to, I was a good kid growing up you know, sort of running away just based upon the family experience. And I, I had to make a choice. Like, like nobody was going to do it for me. Um, I had to get student loans, put myself through college, you know, work full time during the day, go to school at night. Uh, I just had to work really hard to kind of, or else I was going to end up, you know, working at Costco forever, <laughs> kind of a deal. Um, and I just choice, like, I don't, I want more for my life. And so I, um, like I said, put myself through college and just kind of figured that out. And that was one of the best things I could have done because having that degree, I, I felt, I think when I got into real estate, people would tell me, man, we called you because you know you have a lot of degrees behind your name. I have a master's degree. And so it kind of gave me the competitive edge because it sort of positioned me as more of the authority and not just your traditional normal real estate agent. And so I realized the value in that. And then I just continued to 
get more credentials, you know, get, learn more, get core designations. Um, and I, I, I knew how important it was to be different and unique in, in it, it's important in any industry, no matter what you're in. Uh, and so when I first got into real estate, I remember looking around at what my competitors were doing and thinking, okay, what are people doing well? How can I emulate what they're doing? And what, what, are, what aren't they doing that maybe I can capitalize on? And so what I did when I first got into real estate was I looked outside of the real estate industry to see what they were doing. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what, being a good speaker or is not my norm. I, I, you know, when I, I remember when I get it broker tour and I had to, I'd have to talk about my houses. And I, I, I remember I called myself Krista Miller one time I was Krista Major. I'd gotten married, but I was so nervous. I called myself Krista Miller, uh, just talking about my houses and bedrooms, bathrooms, square footage at broker store in front of 20 people. So it's definitely not something that came naturally to me. I've really had to work on it. Um, and I, and I, I don't get as nervous as I, as I do now, but I mean, I've been doing this now for about you know, 15 years, more than that, closer to 20 years. So, so it was a skill I had to learn and I had to really get over my fear of the camera, my fear of the way that I looked, my, all of my insecurities about my the business, about my knowledge, about the way I look, about what people think. And, and I still have to, like, there's days where, you know, I just don't feel as confident or I haven't had that green of a launch or I, 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 I tried something new and I bombed it, you know, and, um, fail completely. And that it, it kind of takes a dive at your confidence. And so constant work in progress, right. Of trying to be the best person I can and, and, and have the failures and remind myself that failures aren't really failures. But, um, you know, I think the best thing that I've been able to do in, in any part of my entrepreneurial journey is just really look outside of outside of my industry that what was working and finding out how I could put that to use in my business. And then also looking at what's happening in my industry and how can I capitalize on the things that are working well, but still try to do them a little bit differently so that I can position myself as the authority. I think that's really important in real estate because there's so much competition. You know, a couple of comments I want to make in all of this, and I want to go back a little bit into your story. You know, first off is that I don't know that, and, and you can, here's my experience. You know, my wife is on camera a lot. We do a pod set, a podcast called Mindset Matters. I have team that are female that are on camera. It It's more difficult to be female in this space. You guys, you know, you got makeup to put on, you got hair to do. It's generally a lot more work. You know, guys, here, let me change my shirt and throw my, you know, my, my, you know, balding head back and see if I can get my hair in the right place. I guess there's really, what have I got to do? You know, powder my nose and away we go. Take the shine off my forehead. And you guys, you know, you women have a lot more work to do. It takes a lot to prep and be in front of a camera. So that's just an interesting, I make that statement for those who think that showing up on camera is easy. It's not, number one. Number two, I love what you said as well, Krista, which is, you know, you didn't come out of the shoot a speaker. You have to work on it. You have to, you know, you have to hone that craft of speaking. And so I just wanted to shine a light on that. I don't know if you have anything that you want to comment on about that, but is that, is that your experience as well? Oh, I think it's hard for most people. Like we're afraid of judgment, right? I mean, we are, we're afraid of looking like imposter syndrome. Yeah. You admit as a new agent, right? You're, 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 you're not only afraid that yourself, but you're also afraid of what your peers are going to think. Your peers know that you're new. They know you haven't, that you're new. You know they're talking crap and and they are. Like, it's like, who is this new person? What do they know? They're brand new. They don't know anything. They don't have any experience. Like, you know they are saying that. And and who cares? Like, let them judge you. Let them say that it's worse. And let the people that that know you say things. What's, what's worse? Having people talk about you or having nobody know you at all. It's worse. Nobody know you at all. And it, it'll, it comes to a point where that it switches from who the hell do they think they are to who are they and what are they doing? Like I do that. And and it happens so quickly. I've seen so many uh, newer agents and, and a lot of them are younger, right? Because they're, they're, they were, they kind of grew up with these cell phones. They grew up with hiding behind a camera, so to speak. They, they grew up with technology more, so they're more comfortable with it. And so they've adapted they've harnessed it quite, quite well. You know, I just recently interviewed a girl on my podcast and she's been in the business for like four years. And she's been like on stages of three, four, five, seven thousand people talking about producing content and how it's fast tracked her, you know? And, and so I think it's it's even a little bit easier for younger people. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that I that I've always done it is I even when I was a real estate agent, I made sure that I was at the office 
every day by eight o'clock with my makeup on and my hair done. And I still do that now. Now I don't go to the office. My home office is my computer. It's right here where I'm at on my desk. But I still like my goal is to be in front of my computer at eight o'clock with my makeup on and my hair done. Even it, because I know that the more confident I feel, and, and again, you know, Patrick, just one step further, but the older that we get as a woman, it's even harder because, because people are, you know, so they just are like, they're judgy. And, and as a woman, you just, you know, you don't feel like sex sells everywhere. Like sex is everywhere, right? The movies, magazines, and what, what we, we the, the airbrushing and all that, it, it is not easy I think even more so as a woman to put yourself out there. We have insecurities and I've, I mean, I've been doing this now for over 20 years and I, I'm not as confident as I used to be there. I look at another bags of my eyes and I, I can see my wrinkles and my pores. I'm just like, God, it's so ugly. And I didn't have to make myself do it. You know, what I think people are more interested in is what is what you're talking about valuable. Are you really helping people is what you're putting out there, you know, making an impact on your community. And the more that you know who your community is and what they need and like who your, who your ideal client is, what are their aspirations, what are their hopes, what are their fears, where are they at, where do they want to go, what problems are keeping them from getting there, what things they need to know about that they have no idea they should even know about, right? The more that you understand who your client is and do your research in the beginning, the better that you're going to be able to speak directly to them, right? And whether you're new at producing content or new in your field, you just have to be a couple steps ahead of the person, you know, that's on the other side of the screen. You know way more than they do. And even if you don't, like, go read an article. Go go watch another training and, and reiterate it, right? It's as simple as that. You know, so it's, it's, it's really not as hard as people make it. The hardest part is just starting and, and getting out there and doing it consistently. You know, I think, like, so many things in business, you know, what's the problem you're solving? And if you as a content provider can be solving problems, answering those questions for those that are, you know, looking to buy their first home or their next home or the investor that is trying to figure out where and what to buy and what to invest in, put their capital to work. If you're the problem solver, if you've got those answers to those questions, and even sometimes to questions that they know that they didn't even know they should be asking, and all of a sudden they go, oh, I never even thought of that, then it changes the game in terms of how you're seen in the expertise that you are showing up with. And I love that. And I want to go back. I want to go back because you stepped over it really quickly. And I want to know, again, I look at it from a mindset. I look at what you've accomplished and listening to your story. And it's interesting when I go back, you know, to your story that you're brought up 13 years old, you kind of leave home, you're going through some really tough times as a kid. Many people, I would even argue probably, I know it's a generalization, anecdotal, my thought on it, Many people use that as an excuse. So in other words, as a coach myself, I'm often hearing stories of upbringing and it's the reason that people don't achieve or they don't do what they don't do. They've got all the story. They, they bring an old story forward and that defines them. Did, do you think your old story or your story defined you? In other words, you know, at a young age, you're like surviving. You're trying to figure shit out. You're actually having to learn, you know, who's there to support you as a 13, 14, 15-year-old, 18-year-old girl and who's trouble. You know, like, are you in a survival mode? And do you think that was part of the catalyst that drove you to be and do what you do in, in the business world? What's your thoughts on that? 100%. <laughs> so like people last week, my first year in real estate, I sold 16 houses. And people and people ask me, right, like, how'd you do it? You know, which is totally, how I did it is totally different than how I would do it now. But the real reason is, so when I had, when I, I got married, my husband ended up having an affair and then leaving me with a brand new house. We just bought a brand new house, make accounts for a dream. And I had two little girls, you know, under the age of four. And so I had just left my full-time teaching job to be a stay-at-home mom because my oldest, my youngest daughter, Kaylee, um, got really, really sick and, and she almost died. They told me that she was going to probably, uh, she had spinal meningitis, kidney failure, and like she had multiple strokes. So they told me that she probably was going to be severely disabled, blind, death, all these issues. So I left my teaching job to be stay-at-home mom so I kind of really help her with her milestones and sort of make sure that she was as good as she could, could be. And she's fine now. She just has ADHD, but that I think just is because of me, not her. <laughs> so when I got married and then left my career and and that happened, I went into real estate. I had like, I had to make it work. It was kind of like do or die. And I know that my upbringing and not living in home was like a catalyst to make 
Like I wanted to make sure I kept my girls in their house and kept them safe and kept them memories. Like it was like such of a, it was my hundred percent of the reason why I sold 69 houses. And, and also the reason why I continued to year after year after year, I was kind of like in this survival mode. It took me a long time to kind of realize like, okay, I'm okay. They're okay. It's, it's going to be okay. Right. Um, so much so that like 17 years went by and I was like, what the heck did I do with my life? Like I've missed half of their growing up because I was working so much, but that was why. Yes. And I think, you know, people will say, you need to know your why. And it's just like super overrated, but I would never have been able to sell the amount of homes that I did. Uh, had I not really had, I, I, I was determined to keep them safe in that house. And I remember when we had just bought a new home and I looked in the backyard and it was like dirt back there. Cause when you buy houses in California, they don't do the backyards for you. And after, you know, feeling really sorry for, for myself alone on, on a Thanksgiving when my daughters got picked up from the new girlfriend to go off to Thanksgiving. And after feeling like crap, I remember looking in the backyard and saying, you're, you've got to fix this. Let's turn that backyard into like memories and play and fun. And so I made a commitment, like, I'm going to do that. So within like nine or 10 months, I built a huge pool back there and gorgeous backyard from selling a lot of houses. And it ended up being okay. But I think it's really important to have like a reason behind things because things get hard. I mean, you know, I put on a fake smile for, you know, the first couple of years in real estate because I was kind of devastated. My family was broken up and, uh, you know, I thought I was happily married to find out my husband was having an affair. And next thing you know, you know, the girls are living 50-50 between me and him with the new wife. Um, so I was kind of sort of broken. So I kind of had to put on a fake smile and just sort of do it, if that makes sense. Yes. But I did. And then... And then things got easier and I just kept going. But, you know, I mean, real estate is difficult. Life can be difficult. And I, I just know that I had to, it was a complete uh, decision to really work on my mindset. And when you have physical abuse to repair, it really does kind of mess you up. Like you always feel like, oh, I'm not good enough or people don't like me or you, you have trouble with your self-worth and your self-value. And I knew that early on, like I had a lot of self-esteem issues. So I, I really worked on my mindset so much. So like now I'm pretty much, not that, not that I don't get sad sometimes or I don't feel sorry for myself or get depressed because I do, but it's like hours or moments uh, or maybe even days, but not like weeks or months or years. You know, it's like I, I've learned to really um, master my mindset because I know how important that is. I wrote a book on it. It's called Stop, Snap and Switch. And the whole book is based upon scientific evidence and how the brain works and uh, you know, research studies on how the brain works. And it's like, I've been pretty obsessed with it. So it's, me being so mindset driven is really, I think, been the catalyst to the success that I have. Can you can you say your the book your name again? It just I missed it. It's called Stop, Snap, and Switch: uh, Train Your Brain to Unleash Your Limitless Life. Basically, it's a strategy of like we have anywhere from like forty to seventy thousand thoughts a day, and research shows that like a lot of those thoughts are negative thoughts, and a lot of the thoughts are like repeated negative thoughts that we have over and over because there's so much negativity. And the reason we have certainly negative thoughts is because like we see negative everywhere, especially in the news because negativity sells. And so it's a matter of like training your brain to think differently, right? Because we know that like our, our, what we think about, like our philosophies, our beliefs, that turns into our actions, right? Our habits, our rituals, our routines, and those actions, those habits, rituals, and routines that literally are created from our thoughts or focusing on those, those actions, they create our life. So if we can turn the original thought pattern around when like a negative thought of, oh my gosh, I'm too young to do this. Like this is never going to work for me. I, 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 it's like you stop and recognize that negative thought. You snap a bracelet and switch the bracelet to the other hand. And then you go, hey, I am new because I'm new. I'm going to have more innovation and I'm not going to be like doing what everyone else does. Like it's just, it's turning around every single block, the negative thoughts that we have over and over and that kind of turn into repeat. Because, you know, energy goes where focus flows. What you think about, you get in life. So if we're constantly thinking off, thinking about like the sky is falling and things are so horrible and I'm not going to have any business because of interest rates and nobody's going to buy if there's not, there's no investments or I'm too new to do this. I'm too young to do this. I'm not experienced enough. I suck at technology. Like you're just, you're, you're the neurotransmitters in our brains. They do not know the difference between what we think about. Like, like science actually shows this. And what we're focusing on and what we're actually saying. So if we can turn around that mental conversation uh, in our heads, and it's it's literally a practice. It's something that you have to do over and over and over again. A 
of course, you know, we're going to still have rough days. We're, it's okay to be sad sometimes. It's okay to like, like really face the demon in front of us, right? And, you know, be sad. You're not going to be happy when somebody passes away in your family. You're not going to be happy when you lose a listing. You're not going to be happy when you, when you don't get that deal. You're not going to be happy when you get passed up for the job. But if you can look at, you know, like you had said, Krista, you know, how the thing that happened to you in the past, a lot of people take their past and they use that as a reason or an excuse, I call it an excuse, to say, this is why I'm not successful, or this is why things don't work for me. I wasn't, you know, that person was brought, was, you know, born into a really rich family, or they have really great parents, or they're just naturally, you know, physically better inclined. They're, they were born to be a better basketball player because their dad was. All that stuff is just bull crap. We're all kind of built the same. I mean, there are some genetic things, you know, but it's really what you create, like you you create your life. And so I think that, you know, everyone says this mindset is more important than skill set. It's like really overrated and people like talk about it. But I, I will tell you that it's been like, uh, you know, every aspect of my life from the couple of companies that I own where, you know, everything is from scratch. It's bootstrapped. No one handed anything to me. It's all come from just like creating it, you know? I love it. You know, and something that is interesting, I note that you didn't say, which is that it's not about positive thinking. It's actually, in addition to the research that you probably did, is understanding that people get confused. Well, you've got to think positively. That's actually not the best way to approach it. It's actually identify the negative thoughts and cut them off. Disconnect the negative thoughts is where you get the better results. So it's not about positive thinking. It's about being aware of what your negative thoughts are and then shifting those negative thoughts, disconnecting them, you know, pushing back on those thoughts. It's like, you know, I'm not smart or I don't know how to do that. You know, it's, uh, I don't know who gave me that thought process, but it was like, I don't know how to do that. And then you add one word, one very special word yet. Yeah. And it is a powerful word, is it not? And it shifts everything about it, you know, because it then implies that you're going to do that. You know, mindset is such an important conversation. I'm curious for you in terms of all your research that you did to write your book and what you've learned on your own. Was there some specific authors or some specific I guess, leaders, you know, like I'm a big, I've, I've read it all over 30 years. I shouldn't say I've read it all. I've read a lot of different authors over the years. Stuart Wilde used to be, was one of my key go-to guys many, many years ago and went on to Wayne Dyer and of course, Tony Robbins, all the go guys, you know, to this day, I still am doing that type of reading because it's always seems to be work to do and new discoveries to be made about what makes our brain fire the way it does. Uh, right now, I'm a big fan of Joe Dispenza, but who was it for you? Uh, what was the kind of the work that you uh, uncovered or some of the authors that you followed? Every single person that you just mentioned, I follow as well. I, uh, uh, Joe just ends up being more recent than not. I love Napoleon Hill. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and I think, I feel like all these things that you learn from Napoleon Hill, like Jim, like Tony Robbins learned from Jim Rohn, yeah. you know, you know, Wayne Dyer, Joe Dispenza, all these different people that they're kind of saying the same thing in a different way, 100%. but there's like nothing new, but the way that somebody says something can really, really hit you. And I remember when I was reading the book Think and Grow Rich from Napoleon Hill. And it was, he was talking about like having a mastermind team and like people have these ideas and life. And most people like, like Matthew McConaughey just wrote a book called Get Green Lights. Mm -hmm. it, and all you know, talks about like, you have these ideas and these things that you want to do, but most people let fear hold them back. And so they don't, they don't take the, their ideas and their, their dreams and their aspirations. They just kind of stay separate or at. So uh, Napoleon Hill was a huge, like, I love that book, Think and Grow Rich, you know, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I can't remember who the author is Stephen on that. Covey. Stephen Covey. Yeah, Stephen, yeah. Stephen Covey wrote several books, you know, How to Win for Friends and Influence People. Like, there's just, I don't, I've not read them all, but I read a lot of them. If you look at my Audible, you'll see, or my uh, bookshelf, you'll see all, all those books. And yeah. But, but you make a good point. And we, uh, Stephanie, my wife and I just talked about this on our last podcast, where we said that, you know, there is no new stuff. It's just the way people say it or the way authors say it, researchers say it lands differently for you, how you hear it. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, there are certain quotes that just never leave me that I, it really helps me shape sometimes my view of the world. You know, Wayne Dyer, his famous quote is that, you know, 
uh, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And for me, that love- speaks to so many. Like, so now when I'm in a charge, when I'm pissed off, or when I'm, you know, perhaps overexcited about something, I'm just step back from it long enough to say, okay, how am I looking at this, and can I look at it different? Does it change when I look at it different? It's it's just moments in time. I don't necessarily contemplate it for long periods, but of course, you have these thoughts in split seconds, and it's just a powerful quote that I often go back to. And I mean, there's so many of those uh, memes, and there's they all have. They're all, they all have meaning and they all come from real life circumstances. Somebody came up with that phrase for a reason, you know, something shaped that quote. And it serves us sometimes to contemplate, you know, with my uh, men's group that I recently launched, you know, I, I'm kind of doing what is the, what, what is the quote I'm contemplating, right? And I share it. And, you know, often these quotes, you just need to take and think about it a little bit, you know, what does it mean to you? And uh, it's very, very insightful. I've started uh, over the past few years, I've really studied Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and that that whole group of really cool Stoics because it is an interesting train of thought. It is a way of living and how we view the world. So I love it. And I'm going to read your book because I love the fact that you wrote a book and you've done that kind of research. I think it's, it's incredible. Now, when you look at EXP and the model of EXP and the coaching that you're doing, is there pattern or a common pattern that you see aside from people just get in their own way you know as a coach myself I understand you know it's like you just see how people get in their own way but is there something that you see as a kind of a regular you know this is what shows up for realtors all the time is there something that you kind of it's just a reoccurring theme that you see yeah I think people are always getting ready and they're aiming but they're not firing enough right and I think the case for I think you know Napoleon Hill he, they talk, he talks about success traits. And on my wall, you can't see it, but like it says up there, do it now. Do right? it now. Just do it. Do it now. Yeah. Yeah. I have, because so many people are like, they're getting ready. Uh, they're aiming, but they're not firing enough. Like, and that's one of the things that um, that even Napoleon Hill says, that successful people, they take action. They, take, they, they, they do things quickly, right? They make decisions quickly. They're very decisive in nature. He calls it being decisive in nature. And I think that, so, so many times in real estate, we get in our own way. Like, we're, like so many, even my students, like I'll give you an example. We teach, I've been teaching to do video content for six years to my students, create video content. And after about two years, I realized that people were creating the videos, but they weren't were getting them out to the world because yeah. they were, they were still in their phone. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, I don't know. It's not perfect. And I don't like, you know, they're waiting for things to get perfect. And one of the things like I am very successful in business and I take action very, very quickly and I mess up a lot. But the thing is, is like people are always getting ready for things to get perfect. But even when you wait for things to be perfect, there's still so many things that aren't going to be, and you don't know what those things are until you actually launch or press. Right. And once you press go, and then you can realize what didn't work or what didn't fire. And even if you spend six months doing something or 30, like six minutes, and you just like go, you, you learn so much along the way. And I think one of the reasons what makes me so successful is like, I am not afraid to fail. And I don't even think of failure as failure where I'm thinking like, God, that didn't work. And there's so many things that I do that I, I can assure you that from all of your listeners, I have screwed up probably more than any of them because I launched very quickly, which means that I've done if 10 really bad things and one good one before somebody has even done anything, right? So I'll do... 40 things and be good at four or five of them or four or five things will work when my competition just barely is starting to launch. And then it's, it takes them 40 more times before they, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's, that's one of the biggest common mistakes that I see people making is trying to be perfect. I, I love that whole thought process. And, you know, I, it, that's a hard thing to teach or a hard thing to coach. You know, there's a fundamental that, you know, when I talk to clients and I say, you know, what's your biggest fear? And often the answer is fear of failure. And I challenge them and I go, I want you to think about something. Is it really fear of failure? I mean, to have a catastrophic failure is pretty rare, especially given that you've got some level of experience, some level of common sense. So it's catastrophic failure is pretty rare. You're really putting it out there. Is it really fear of failure or is it fear of not achieving a goal and having the judgment of others, the fear of the judgment of peers, of friends, of family? Is that really what it is or is it fear of failure? And when 
They stop for a minute and reflect. I don't let them answer right away. I ask them to really think about that. It almost always comes back. To, it's not the fear of failure. It's the fear of the judgment that comes with the perceived failure that they have. And it's often the case that we see. And so there's that part of it. And then the other side of it to which you said is that people want it to be perfect. You know, the next thing you know, they're building a baby grand piano when they only need a player piano. You know, a partner of mine, you know, he goes, you know, I just jump out of the airplane. I don't need a parachute. I'll build the parachute on the way down and I know I will. And so when you start to get to the conclusion that you realize that the decision that you make only leads to the next decision. And if you try and build it out front and try and think of all the possibilities and all the things that can happen, you're going to be wrong anyways. So you may as well make the decision, start moving forward, and then redecide. New decision, redecide. You know, you're ultimately you're building on top of the initial decision as information comes to you because you just can't have all the information uh, that you need to say. Okay, well let's launch now. Well, okay, you're going to launch and then you're going to have to redecide or put in a correction anyways. So. The, the tendency is to overthink it. But I think to your point, which is like you say, you know, you've, I guess, using the word you failed far more times than you've succeeded. It's just that you've succeeded a lot in given what you've done, but it took 10 failures to get to that success. And that's really where people get stuck is they're afraid of that failure, which is to realize that you're going to fail a lot. If you're really putting it out there, if you're trying to achieve something big and bigger than uh, even you can imagine, perhaps you're going to fail. That's just comes with the territory. And that's what's necessary. Uh, I always because of sports background, and my wife works with athletes, you know, I, I think about athletes, how often they crash and burn when they're trying something. It's a failure. And so if they looked at it as failure, it would really shut them down. But every time that they try a particular athletic move that doesn't work, they just know they're getting stronger. And yes, it gets frustrating, but ultimately it's in those failures that comes the results. And these are Olympic and world-class athletes. Think about in their careers, how many times they've failed, how many times they've fallen down. And it's just analogies. It's just a way of presenting it to go, you gotta fail. You know, you cannot grow if you don't fail along the way. It just won't happen because you're not testing yourself. So I don't know if you got anything that you wanna expand on that, but that is the fundamental thought process that I go into often. Yeah, I know people talk about it like, fail, fail forward, you know, and it just, it's like seems so cliche, but it really is true because you don't know what to modify and change and adapt. And you don't know what doesn't work to find out what does. Like I'll give you an example. Recently, I launched a new business and, you know, we, we spent the first six months working with entrepreneurs for free and teaching them this business model. And we learned so much along that. Oh my gosh, like crazy, crazy learn. And then when we actually launched to the real world, I realized that I was going after the absolute wrong client avatar, right? Now, and so it, it took us about, you know, six months because we wanted to test that what we were doing even worked, right? And it did, but then we realized, oh my gosh, I'm going after the whole wrong client avatar. And so we kind of took a step backwards, kind of rebuilding. But had I like waited, you know, even longer than I did, which, which wasn't too long, but I mean, it, it's a lot doing a business. Um, I wouldn't have known that it was the wrong client avatar, right? And so just giving up and saying, screw it, this doesn't work. We realized, hey, the content that we're creating is more for a beginner. It's it's somebody who's just in the position where they're an expert and they want to launch to become an expert. And they they are trying to figure out how to, you know, just to discover what they're good at, how to build their own business, what content to create, how to go about building an offer. It's not somebody who's making $200,000 a year a month, I'm sorry, he's trying to go to 500,000. Like that's who we were going after. Well, there's a very small client <laughs> client portal that that's like that. And so we, but because we launched and we took action, we figured it out, right? In, you know, six, eight months. Whereas if I would have created the entire program and, the, and just kept waiting to make it perfect, I still would not have known that I was going after the wrong audience. So instead of getting mad and pissed off because we went after the wrong audience, we just realized, okay, we need to rethink what we're doing. Right. And, and, and that's how everything is. So you, you don't know that if you don't start or you don't launch. And so it's not cliche to fail forward. And I really don't look at failures as failures. I look at them as just learning experiences. I'm learning what doesn't work so I can get that much closer to what does. Like, that's how I look at, okay, that didn't work. What does, how can I change it? And it's, it's hard to do that. Like, as soon as you're like, man, I suck. Like, it's so hard. Like, ah. You know, I think it's, it's like, I've forgotten how hard it is to start a new business, but it really is the truth. Just, like, as long as you want to ever fail. 
You know, it's interesting is a friend of mine who uh, sells services, different services, whether it be coaching or marketing, a number of different services that he sells and uh, very, very successful at it, by the way. He has a fundamental theory that he's quit doing and all that he does. He actually sells something before he has it. He goes, I'm not playing around anymore. I'm just going to go sell it. If it sells, then I'll build it and I'll deliver. But I'm not going to go build it and then try and sell it. And it's a total flip of what he does. And he is crushing it, has for the past 10 years. And his basic theory is, no, I'm not building nothing until I know it's going to sell. So in other words, as he's selling it, he's also learning, oh, that didn't land. That doesn't work. That narrative's not good. I know what I want to deliver. Does anybody really want to buy it? Are they interested in it? Can I do it? And if it starts to sell, if he gets uptick, guess what? He's got a program. He's got a service that he provides. He does the service knowing that he can provide it, but he doesn't build it in advance. And I'll tell you what, he fails a lot, but there's very little cost related to it. He just reinvents it. And I say it's pretty effective to watch him do it. And I laugh all the time because he pitches this great idea to me. And I go, so when are you launching it? He goes, well, first I got to sell it. And I go, okay, well, let me know how that works out for you. He goes, oh, no, I will. It'll sell. He says, I just don't know exactly how. And it's a really interesting theory. But the point is, is that in business, you know, you learn these things. He learned the hard way uh, after investing a lot of money into a particular program that he did. And then he came back and he goes, I'm not doing that again. It cost me however many hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop it. And then it's not really what anybody wanted, kind of like you've experienced, right? And then you go back to the drawing board and he goes, no, I'm not going back to the drawing board. I'm just not going to draw until I know it's sold. And it's very effective for him. It will come. No, it won't. <laughs> that baseball show. Great. No. Yeah. You Build can't it and they will come. Build it and they yeah. will come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Build the right thing. And if you market appropriately... They may come. <laughs> exactly. If you're lucky, if you do a good job of marketing and getting the message out there, I love that. So, Chris, as I wind down a little bit, as uh, you've been very generous with your time, I appreciate it a lot. You know, we talked about books. You named some of the books. Uh, is there a couple of books or is there one or two books aside from your own, which we're going to talk about or I'll put a link to your book. Is there one or two books that really stand out for you that were game changers and or that you like to gift or really recommend uh, to people that you know? Yeah, so I love uh, the book from Jer uh, Joey Coleman, um, Never Lose a Customer Again. It's a, a book that I've read multiple times. Um, it's amazing. Uh, also, Chet Holmes' The Ultimate Sales Machine. He just recently did like an updated copy. I love Chet Holmes. And then uh, Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. Um, and um, the, the three, three of the books that I really, I'm, I have so many books that I, I, I read. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I worked with Chet Holmes and Jay Levinson 25 years ago. They're legends. Wow. You know, they were legends. And uh, I learned so much. You know, this many years later, I still remember that experience. I flew into San Francisco to do one of their workshops. And uh, still, I mean, there's there's stuff as, you know, guerrilla marketing and all the rest that Levinson used to do. And uh, anyway, still very, very impactful. So sorry if I interrupted you. No, Patrick, I love it. I think we're, we're like old kindred souls. You think <laughs> So as we, again, as we wind down, I got some, a little bit of uh, rapid fire questions I'd like to throw at you. They're, they're not necessarily rapid fire, but let's see what you got. iPhone or Android? iPhone. Oh, that's okay. You're, and, you're... I figure out. I tried. No, I had to give back. <laughs> Favorite swear word? Um, shit. <laughs> oh, that's simple. That's simple. That's not very, yeah, that's good. That's very good. Sometimes, yeah, but I, I don't like to cuss. I try not to. I, I really try not to cuss. I hate, I don't like the way it sounds. I feel like it makes me look more worse. I don't know. Very good. Do you, uh, your room or your desk or your car? Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Uh, anyway, my room. Very car good. Car is always clean. Room's, room's always clean. Desk is in. So, but, but I like to have, I like to have a clean room. I don't like mess. Got it. Favorite tune or favorite band? Uh, I like Toad Wet's, Wet's Rocket and uh, Lighthouse. Oh, okay. A little bit oldie there, the Lighthouse. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, favorite movie? Uh, oh, The Notebook. The Notebook. Wow, that's a, that's a classic love story. There you go. I haven't had that one. I haven't had anybody answer that one for a long time. Pearl Harbor, too, with, with Ben Affleck. And that was a good show, I think. Was that where, was that Pearl Harbor? It was, yeah. yeah. It was like this, too. That was good. If God exists, what do you want to hear him say when you get to the gates? 
Uh, you did it right. Oh, very good. And final question for today, Krista, what are you grateful for? Everything. I mean, that's part of my daily routine is like focusing on what I'm grateful for, but um, I'm, I'm happy about my past. I feel like it really helps me help people and it makes me, puts, puts me into perspective. And uh, I'm grateful that I have, I got married to my second husband. He's just an amazing, loyal, loving man. Um, I know this is like, again, cliche, but I mean, I've got, I'm, I have a really close relationship with my daughters and I'm very, I'm really proud of the parent that I, that I am. So I'm really thankful for my, the close family, even as close as I am to my parents, given everything, like we're super close. So I'm, I'm grateful for a lot of things. <laughs> That's awesome. Me too. I'm grateful very much for having you on the show today and uh, getting to know you a little bit better. And thank you for being a guest like you. I am very grateful for my family, for my wife. Uh, I got two Bernie's bound dogs and, uh, Echo, the female, just had six puppies. And so I'm, I'm grateful for going through that experience. And uh, it wasn't planned parenthood, but we're very, very happy to have those puppies in our life. And uh, so that's my gratitude for today. And always I'm grateful for my listeners and uh, for meeting uh, people like you and for the gifts that you shared today. So thanks very much, Krista. Patrick, thanks for having me. Everyone, make sure you go like and subscribe to this podcast. It's a lot of work you see on doing this. Make sure you go give him the thumbs up. Thanks very much, Krista. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.